Well, good morning everyone. It, it's a privilege to be here and to think on the Lord and think what he wants for us. This idea of the day came to me two years ago because I realised that last year we weren't going to have any mission partners home. And I thought, what can we do instead? So I had this brilliant idea that we could perhaps run a day. And then, of course, last year something got in the way, didn't it? And everything stopped. And then our house group was listening to the Australasian GAFCON service. And at the end of Jay's sermon, he mentioned the refrain from the GAFCON conference, which I wasn't at and I hadn't heard, to proclaim Christ faithfully to the nations. And I thought, that's it. That's where we're going. What does that mean? What does it mean to me? What do I do about it? What do you do about it? What do we do about it as a church? Do we leave it to people like Rosie and Jay and our mission partners, people in full-time service? Or what does it mean to me? And there are some words um, from John. Thank you, William. That I'm not going to read, but you can if you like. I've actually ne- only ever heard someone preach on this once. He was, of course, preaching on Peter being reinstated, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, and so on. And probably, I didn't realise this at first, but probably he was walking around the lake with Jesus. And there was John hurrying to catch up with his friends. And Peter turned and saw him and he said, what about him? And Jesus said, it's none of your business. And the person who was preaching or teaching, he was was at a Christian union meeting soon after I went to university. He said, we're not all called to be Peter. We're not even all called to be John. But we are all called. So what does this mean to you and what does it mean to me? And I'd like us all to think about that today. Does God have another step for us? Is it to continue what we're doing? Do we know always what what God is calling us to do? On my 70th birthday in Auckland, where a lot of my family seemed to be, my bridesmaid was there. And she said to me, you were the reason I went overseas. After training at Bible College, for those of you who are older, she was there the same year as um, Bob Robinson. You were the reason I went overseas. I sort of thought, how? What did I do? And thanks for telling me 45 years later. And I, I think what I'd done was I'd taken her to CMS League of Youth meetings and I'd taken her to CMS Spring Schools. And I remember one year 
uh, a woman who's um, known on the CMS publications as our friend. We were a threesome at that one CMS spring school. We went round together and Elaine shared with us why she was called to Tibet, which was then a closed country, of course. And so we don't always know. I'm no longer 20 or 40 or even 60. Has God got a purpose for me now? Has he got a purpose for you? Are we too insignificant for the Lord? And I want you to think about that today. How is God challenging you today? Well, we're going to sing now, thank you, with our first song, and then I'll ask Jay to come up. I was going to welcome everyone before, but it seems strange welcoming you, because in your position as vicar, you have the right to attend any meeting in the parish anyway. Yes, you can just remember that, please. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, we sort of know you, we know you lots. And, and, and in fact, when I was talking about what is mission, do you remember what you said your mission was? No. Mission, <laughs> mission impossible. <laughs> <laughs> but you have been ordained three times now. And the last time, you didn't have much choice in one sense, was chosen for you. But in the beginning it wasn't. Why did you choose to be ordained? And then after that, what does ordination mean to you personally? <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> I was going to say this was a bit odd, because uh, uh, church family knows me pretty well, and uh, I'm not sure I've ever been asked that before. Why did you get ordained? Oh, get ordained? Uh, In the initial times, you know, way well, back. Well, yes, thank you. I, I think um, lots of people know I didn't become a Christian until later in life, so I was uh, early, early 20s when it happened, and, um, and then it took a, a maybe a late teens, early 20s, and then it took quite a long time before I matured in my faith, mainly due to uh, someone sitting in the back row, so Jamie got hold of me and um, matured me as a Christian. And because, I did, because through Jane I realised I didn't know much about my faith, uh, so I was convinced that Jesus was who he said he was, I was convinced that he died for me, I was convinced now as a Christian, but I knew I didn't know much. And I kept telling people in my life that uh, my faith was the most important thing to me, but I didn't know much about it. And so um, if you'd asked me about uh, sport or music, I could have told you lots of things that you would have been bored by, but if people asked me much about the Christian faith or the Bible, I didn't know much at all. And so I ended up going to a Bible college in the UK just to learn. So Danny and I had only been married a few months. We went over to England and um, uh, we were doing the studies there, but it was only to learn. I was a milk, milk factory worker. And um, my expectation was I'd probably come back and carry on getting a job. They promised me they'd hold me my job at milk factory, so I thought I'd probably come back and do that. But while we were there, the, the minister, the, the person who took the um, college, uh, asked Jamie and I had seen him a couple of times and he chatted to me about the possibility of doing full-time ministry. And I wasn't sure what that meant or where I should, but he kept encouraging me to think about it. And towards the end of the year he said, I think what you should do, Jay, is go back to New Zealand, 
serve in church for a few years and see whether uh, you and your family can cope with it. He said the ministry is an odd thing and even if, you, if you've got the gifts for it, you might not have the personality for it or it might put pressure on your marriage and those sorts of things. So go and try it out and then if it, if it seems to be that God's calling you to it, get some more training. So that's what we did. We came back to New Zealand. I worked for a church as a, a youth slash pastoral worker for three years. And um, about two years into that, I was working for my dad uh, at St. John's Lambert Square, as it was then. Um, he called a number of elders of the church, so the older, wiser, more mature Christians, to have a chat one day about what I should be doing, what Jack and I <laughs> should be doing. And um, uh, it was a really helpful discussion. They, they all sat around and they had different points of view and those sorts of things, but really they encouraged us to look at getting more training and in a full-time capacity. So that's what we ended up doing. We ended up going over to Australia, uh, training for a few more years, and um, the thought was to work in a church full-time, but it wasn't yet automation. And um, uh, the truth of the matter is, the reason I got ordained is because of a, a five-minute conversation with a guy called Peter Jensen once. So he was the principal of the college I went to, but he left when I was in first year because he got elected to be Archbishop of Sydney. So he always felt guilty for our year group because a lot of us had gone there to be training us to fight him and then he up and left selfishly <laughs> on the first year. And um, uh, so he, he always said to our year, I'll do anything for you because I feel guilty. Well, I like it when people feel guilty and you can call them favours. So <laughs> we'd ask him to come and speak at a house party of ours in the third year. So our year was going away for a weekend away and um, uh, he came and spoke at it and he and he uh, came up in the morning tea and put his arm around me and said, Jay, let's go for a walk. And he had all these thoughts about ministry in New Zealand and where we could, what we could do and those sorts of things. And it all involved being ordained in the Anglican Church. And um, I remember saying to him, I'm not sure I want to be ordained in the Anglican Church. And he said, well, this will only take five minutes. And he talked me into being ordained in five minutes. So <laughs> I feel that's not the right answer, Margaret. It's more about going into full-time Christian ministry, but I do think that's um, probably more important than ordination itself. I don't think it matters whether it's the right answer or the wrong answer, because I think it's an illustration that God leads us in different ways. And I remember after you became vicar of St Stephen's, you then had some more doubts, and you went off to England for a conference of some form, and you came back, and at the first AGM you said you'd doubt as to whether you'd continue as vicar. And I remember getting up and saying, you may have doubted, but every day we were giving thanks to the Lord that you'd come. <laughs> so God has other plans sometimes that we do. So, so what does ordination mean to you now? So you did get ordained, so what does it mean to you? Well, I think it means being set apart and having the privilege of... I mean, one of the things I think Margaret's already alluded to today and we're certainly going to be thinking about it for the rest of the morning is that we're all Christians called to serve. Um, God's at work, he's got a mission in this world, we all, we all play a part. And I think those that are ordained have this privilege of being set apart to do it full time. And, uh, and it is a privilege. It's, um, so we all serve the Lord, no matter who we are, what stage of life we're at, what we're doing with most of our time, whatever, we're all serving him and fitting in and hopefully serving as part of his plans and purposes. 
But uh, I think to be ordained um, is to be set apart to be able to do that in a full-time way without some of the other distractions and difficulties and stresses of life. It brings its own difficulties and stresses and, and things. But um, So it's, it's that. And I think being set aside in a kind of servant leader role. Thank you. I think the set apart is an important thing, that, that you are set apart. I remember saying to John Selman, who used to be a St Stephen's person, and he was down and staying with me for a CMS council meeting. And I said, John, why haven't you been ordained? Have you ever thought of it? He said, I think God has called me to be an ordained lay person. And we do need ordained lay people, of course, don't we? We need, we wouldn't any point for you if you didn't have a few lay people. Um, so, yeah, so it is good. And I'm glad you've been set aside for that purpose. Um, right. When, um, thank you, David. Uh, I'm just going to do a quick uh, reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 27 to 11, verse 1. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this is being offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience' sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks or the Church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. Do we have a copy of that reading, Will, that we can have up? Just the last part of that. Do other people have Bibles? No? Carry a long morning. Uh, thank you, uh, everyone. It's um, very nice to be here, and um, uh, I mean, this is not my choice. It's not to me to welcome people, but uh, it's like to have Rosie and Micah here. It's so good to see you guys. Thank you for coming in and sharing uh, with us this morning. Um, is it up there? Yep. Just as she, uh, just as people are trying to put it up there, if I could say just a couple of things off the cuff. Um, one was thank you, Margaret, for reminding me of all my early troubles when I first came to the city. <laughs> That's entirely true. I don't know whether people uh, do know that. But, um, yeah, I, was, I definitely found it difficult coming to succeeds. And I'd already been doing ministry full-time or part-time for a number of years, but the extra responsibility of being the vicar uh, almost broke me. And um, there was definitely truth to that. It was... Uh, you, you forget, don't you, when things are riding on you and you're feeling the pressures and that sort of thing. And sometimes you can't do it under your own strength instead of seeking the Lord and looking for the support and 
of very capable people around. Uh, it was definitely a, a difficult time that, so I do remember. And now I feel really bad this morning. Uh, the second thing was, I, I liked the passage that Margaret brought our attention to with Peter going, what about him? That's a really true aspect of life, isn't it? I call it the sideways glance, and the sideways glance is not always helpful because we go, well, what about them? They, they seem to have much better circumstances than me. They don't seem to have the same problems as, that I do. Uh, why aren't you dealing with them, Lord, as you seem to be dealing with me? And the sideways glance can get you into all sorts of problems. As an individual, as a Christian, as a church, sometimes you do it as churches. Up at that church, they've got all the, the benefits and the blessings. And um, it reminds me of that book. I mentioned it in a sermon a few years ago. I'm trying to remember. Sophie DeWitt wrote it. Can I remember the title? Compared to her, maybe? Is it, is it Liverpool? Uh, where she talks about that um, compulsory comparison syndrome. She said she. She suffered from something called CCS. I've never heard of this before. But she said compulsory comparison syndrome. People remember this? And um, I just thought it was... She was speaking from a woman's perspective, but I think everyone can kind of understand it. She said she was always comparing herself to other people. She said she'd walk into a room and she'd straight away work out who was younger than her, who was older than her, who was thinner than her, who was larger than her, who uh, had done more in their life. and, uh, And it's just a terrible way to live. Because you either, there's very few draws when you do that kind of thing. You, there's either a winner or a loser. Because on some kind of metric, someone's going to win. So you either end up feeling kind of superior to other people, or you feel down on yourself and inferior. And both of those two outcomes are terrible. Because you're either looking down on other people, or you're feeling so lonely, instead of finding your worth in the Lord Jesus Christ. And just, just looking at yourself. And that sideways glance that... Um, we see Peter do with uh, John. And what does Jesus say to him? Don't worry what's happening to John, Peter. (laughs) You worry about you and your relationship with me. That's uh, kind of what goes on. And and as Christians involved in mission, we can sometimes do that. We can look at mission partners or mission organisations or other Christians and think, well, they've got all the gifts or they've got all the opportunities and we don't. And it just, it's an unhelpful thing to to do in this kind of space. So... None of that was in my notes, but um, I just thought of it as Margaret uh, shared that. How about I pray, and then we um, uh, have been concerned. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, the opportunity that we have to be here now, and uh, the chance to think about your work in the world. Father, we, um, we thank you that you haven't left us alone in this world, because it's a, life, it's a world full of uh, pain and difficulty. It's a world full of uh, uncertainty and doubt. Thank you that you you haven't left us alone. Thank you that you've given us a purpose. And we pray, Lord, that as we um, spend some time this morning thinking about your work in this world and how we can be part of it, that you would uh, infuse us by your Spirit, that you would um, perhaps (coughs) alight afresh uh, this desire to serve you, that you might open up different avenues for us to um, think about how to live for you and uh, to... Uh, share the good news of Jesus with others. We pray this morning wouldn't be a burdensome time where we just end up feeling guilty and uh, thinking about the things we should be doing around and but rather a time when you just maybe reignite us and strengthen us, encourage us to serve you more wholeheartedly. Father, please be at work this morning by your spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on this mission morning, I thought we'd think about mission and um, I think there's two things important when it comes to missions. 
you've got to know who you are and you've got to know what the purpose is. And um, both are important. If you get one wrong, it will drastically affect what you think you're doing. If you're a, a parent, what's your mission? You can muck it up by getting your identity wrong because you, um, you try to be a friend instead of a parent. If you get the identity wrong, it's not going to work. If you get the mission wrong, it's not going to work. If you think uh, your children are there just to control or something, you're preparing them for life. You've got to be clear about who you are and what things are about when it comes to mission. And uh, <coughs> I don't think we've got to analyse too much of our culture today to realise that in the West, the issues of identity and purpose seem to be right at the root of a lot of people's lives, a lot of controversy, a lot of discussion, a lot of meaning. Identity, who I am, and purpose, what I'm about, what I should be doing. If we look in the West in particular, so much of the cultural debate and voice and uh, struggles is over those two issues. Who I am and what I should be doing. Uh, people want to know who they are and what they're, they're about. Uh, I go further in some circles today. It's not just uh, that people want to be able to define, uh, not just understand who they are, they want to be able to define who they are. So I determine who I am. And uh, biology doesn't determine who I am, I determine who I am. Uh, stereotypes and expectations of others doesn't define who I am, I define who I am. And you can't tell me what I need to be doing. I need to follow my dreams and follow my heart and those kind of ways. I worry about the inner voice. The inner voice seems to be the, uh, the, the big thing that we follow in terms of identity and purpose at the moment, which I think is a worry because we know as Christians our inner voice is flawed like all of us. Sometimes the inner voice can be helpful and uh, good. Sometimes the inner voice can be wrong and unhelpful. So to always be looking to the inner voice to work out who we are and what we should be doing, I don't think it's always helpful, but that's where we're at. And we've got a culture at the moment that is about understanding who we are and uh, stating what we're going to be doing. Uh, now you may disagree with me on that. That's fine. We can, we've got a long morning. We can chat about it. And I don't pretend to have a sophisticated method when it comes to cultural analysis. Some people do, but I don't. I only look at two things when I'm trying to work out what the world around us is like. I look at children's movies and I look at advertising. That's, how I, that's, that's where I get my cultural analysis from. But it seems to me to be true. If you go back 25 years ago and you look at the children's movies, they were nearly all the same message that was coming through, which was take responsibility and work hard. If you think of songs like Bear Necessities or Hakuna Matata, it was, those songs were warnings. Don't just, it, it means no worries. They were, don't live like that, it was saying. Take responsibility and work. The children's movies today are all saying, be yourself. Be true to you and follow your dreams. That's what it's saying. That's the advertising exactly the same, I would argue. These products will help you be you, the true you, and will help you do what you want to be doing. That's how our society's thinking. Uh, just this week, the singer and actress Demi Lovato became the latest celebrity to uh, declare that she identifies as non-binary. And some of us are still struggling to work out what this language is and what it's saying, but it's saying, she's saying uh, at that point that she doesn't see herself as a she. she the gender, her gender doesn't fit how she sees herself, and so she wants the pronouns they and them to be used of her instead of uh, her or she. Uh, and in fact, it was a few days ago she said that, so she may not be the latest because these things are happening very quickly at the moment. And it's not just in the world of the celebrity over there, 
uh, I can talk about things going on in our schools right now, right now in the local schools uh, around us. And I sometimes hear Christians speaking into this space and on these issues, and I think we should, Christians should always have a voice, but I just caution us in the way we speak, because there are serious things going on as people in our society struggle with who they are and what they want to live for and buy and those kind of things. And Christians have got God's wisdom and truth to bear on it, but the way we speak is important. We should speak into these situations recognising that for many of the people involved in them, they are making these declarations or statements because it's a result of pain in their life or confusion or hurt or struggle. It's because, I'm going to show why this is important in a moment, it's because they know almost instinctively there is something wrong with them. Something not as it should be. And that's often combined with a fear. I hope we're, as I'm talking about other people, I hope we're also seeing that this is us ourselves. This kind of knowledge that I'm not right, there's something wrong with me, sometimes combined with a feeling which adds extra pressure that everyone else is today. They don't seem to have the same fears or insecurities or difficulties or pain or struggle. And we should, we should understand that, we get that. These are thoughts and feelings we all have at different times in different areas to different extents. And they're right. The Bible tells us that. There is something wrong with us. Not just you, not just me, it's all of us. We are not as we should be. And all of us will feel that in different areas, but it's there for all of us. The Bible wonderfully explains why that is. It's because of the fall. It's because we're not as we were created to be. You and I were created to have a perfect relationship with the God who lives. We were made to have loving, trusting, perfect relationships with other people. We were made to have a safe, secure home where you could have confidence that nothing would be broken or lost or pulled again. We were made to live. But then the fall happened and all those things changed. Our relationship with God is fractured. It can be good, but it's fractured. Our relationship with other people are all fractured. There are no perfect relationships with other human beings anymore because there's no other perfect human beings. And we ourselves cause pain and difficulty to others. There's no safe, secure home anymore. Those of us in Christchurch know that better than anyone. And death came into the world, which casts a shadow over everything. Sin got in and corrupted things. We mucked things up. And since then, you and I have lived as fallen people, who are not as we should be, in a fallen world, not as it should be. And so we know, non-Christians and Christians alike, and inherently we know there's something wrong. There's something wrong with me, there's something wrong with us, there's something wrong with this world. And so when we sense that brokenness, when we sense that difficulty, people try to sort it out. So people try to, well, I'll define my own identity then. Uh, I'll, I'll follow my own dreams and hearts. And people do that. And you can, you can see why they do it. Now, some of the ways they do it, I think, are profoundly worrying and dangerous. Some are sad and destructive. Some, I think, are unhelpful and addictive. And as Christians, we should, uh, we should see this. And because we love people, we should seek to bring God's grace and truth to those discussions. And, uh, but not just with anger, not just with a holier-than-thou attitude, but with a, we get this kind of attitude. We understand why you're doing these things. We don't agree with where you're going, and, but we can understand it. Because as Christians, we have this rare privilege. 
We know our identity and we know our purpose. So much of the world doesn't. And when you don't, living in this fallen world is even more tricky. You don't really know who you are or really know why you're here. Very hard to have a, a solid anchor and to know where you're going in life. Christians, we have this rare privilege. We know exactly who we are and we know exactly what life is about and why we're here. So we speak with a certain security. If we've got that security, let's be careful in the way we, we, we speak and the way we interact with others. Who are we? We are people made in the image of God, but not just made in the image of God. We're people bought by the blood of Christ. We're people who have this privilege of being made, adopted, children of God. We're his sons and daughters. We're not just citizens of heaven, we're family. That's who you and I are. That puts us in a relationship with each other. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We know who we are. It's the greatest privilege in the world to be able to call God's mother and know that you're his child. That's who you are before you're anything else. And we know what life's about. God's plan of salvation for this world. What he's doing through the Lord Jesus Christ, through his people. We know what this the history of the world is working towards and where it's going. And so we should know our part to plan. We want to fit in with God's plans and purposes. It's a wonderful privilege that you and I have of knowing who we are and what life's about. Now it'll be different for each of us because we're all different, God's made us differently, we'll have different parts to play in the same way that we're different parts of the body, different parts of the body play a different function for the body. But we know the big principle. So that's all I want to do this morning is remind us of who we are and what life's about. Uh, nothing new, what I'm saying this morning. Uh, <coughs> I always feel like I should apologise for that, but I shouldn't apologise for that. Most of the Christian life is not new, learning new things. It's reminding ourselves of old truths. Because we're, we are... I usually, I'm, told, I'm told this is not true, but I, I was told that the goldfish had the memory of, a, of three seconds. I've, I've been subsequently told that goldfish don't have memories of three seconds, but I like that story, so I'm sticking to it. Which means that you can have a goldfish in a little bowl because they forget all the time. So they'll swim around the, the bowl and go, oh, look, a rock. Oh, look, a rock. Oh, look, a rock. It's not true, apparently, but I like that story. We like goldfish. We forget things so easily in the busyness of life. If we get caught up with who we are and what we're doing and those sorts of things, we forget the old truths. Most of the Christian life's not learning new things. It's reminding ourselves of old, wonderful truths that we've forgotten as we've gone through the difficulties of life. So this morning, all I want to do is remind us who we are and what we're about. I think uh, Margaret was forcing me for a title, and I, I called it, I've written it down, What is God's plan for the world and how we fit into it? So it's a small topic, but uh, what is God's plan for the world and how do you and I fit into it? As Christians, we're not individuals living for self. We're not people that are just looking to identify myself and follow my dream. We care for others. We're people involved in the mission of the one who created us and the one who's redeemed us. The one who loves us and keeps us. So to, um, to think about what's God's plan for the world, we could, we could go to lots of parts of the scriptures. There's so many parts of the Bible which tells us what God's work in this world is, what his plan for the world is. Uh, but I chose the one at the end of 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, is it up there? Great. Can we go down <coughs> a little further to where it's... I haven't got a verse number. Oh, it's a 31, will you? Brilliant. Thank you. 
Oh, I'm seeing one. Sorry. You look the same. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you know this passage at the end of 1 Corinthians 10, Paul, who uh, is writing this letter, he's been writing in the verses just before ours about the, a tricky situation that most of us won't find ourselves in. So it's easy to kind of gloss over them. It's an issue of whether Christians can eat food offered to idols, whether Christians can drink wine that has been set apart for other religious uses. Uh, so I hope you can see the scenario that he's been talking about. Can Christians eat things which have been offered for other religious purposes and those kind of things? And Paul says a few things in the verses just before ours. A lot of it's to do with conscience, whether it will affect your conscience or the conscience of the person that you're dealing with and those kind of things. But then he concludes the whole argument, the whole issue, with these verses. Have a look at them. Paul says, So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. This is one of those parts of the Bible which I think is just, these are the big picture principles of life for a Christian. There's a few things to notice in them. What does Paul say is the primary rubric for life? The glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, can we go back one verse? Whether you eat or drink or, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Paul's main thing of life is the glory of God. Well, there we go. We know what life's about. It's about bringing glory to God. But Paul explains more fully what brings glory to God in the verses. And so we keep reading. Do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every sense, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Paul talks about the salvation of people being the thing that particularly, primarily, brings glory to God. And Paul says of his own mission, he does everything for the glory of God, which for him is working for the salvation of people. And what he doesn't want to do is cause other people to stumble in this area, and he wants to be as flexible as he can to win people to Christ, through Christ to God, for the glory of God. Paul says he works tirelessly for people to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, so that they may know the, the wonder of forgiveness, the gift of the Spirit, so that their hearts can be mended, so that their lives can be fixed, so that they can have eternal life within them and be part of the family of God. So Paul works for the glory of God, seen primarily in the salvation of people. And he says in these verses, he does, he therefore lives for the good of other people, not himself. He uses the freedom that he has in God, because remember this, these verses started with, whether you eat or drink, he ends up going, really doesn't matter whether you eat or drink. What matters is, are you doing it for the glory of God? Not for your own personal satisfaction, not due to your own personal preference or leanings, but for the glory of God. And Paul says, he does everything for the good of others, their salvation. He uses the freedom that he has for their good. And I take it what he means there is, he's involved in evangelism and edification. He's involved in telling the people that don't know Jesus who Jesus is, so that they can trust and put their trust in him. And he's involved in telling Christians who do know Jesus, keep going. To encourage them, to comfort them, to challenge them. Then he says, just so that we don't miss it, he gives an explicit command, 
follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. This is an injunction for all Christians. Paul doesn't say this is just for ordained people. doesn't say this is just for our son. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Paul's saying, I expect every Christian to live this way. For the glory of God, working for the salvation of people, putting yourself out for others. And he says, and all I'm doing is following the example of Christ. Which is true. What was Christ's mission? <coughs> Yet not my will, but your will be done. He was seeking God's glory. Now we know in a sense he is God. He's God the Son. But he was seeking the glory of God. And he was, his life was for the good of others, for their salvation. Working for God's glory and the salvation of people. That was Jesus' mission. Paul says here, this is to be our mission. This is the mission of God in the world and it's to be the mission for you and I. That's the rubric. Now if you see, and this is painful and horrible to think about, but you see how wrong the world gets it today. Because the world can see that there's a problem. The world can sense their own individual brokenness and the brokenness of the world around, but they think the solution is, well I'll focus on myself and define who I am and follow my own dreams. That's working against God's plan, which is working for the glory of God and the salvation of others. So we've got a society of broken people who become more and more inward-looking instead of a group of redeemed people that become more and more outward-looking, outward-facing. You can see it. I mean, they used to call the um, the uh, the rule of Jesus, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What, what's the golden rule today? Treat me as I demand to be treated. You can see the distinction. You can see the, the contrast there. And it means that the world, although they know there's a problem and they're right, is getting further and further, I think, away from the Lord because they're looking more inwardly rather than outwardly at towards him and towards others. As Christians, we can't follow that way. Like Paul, like Jesus... It's about God's glory and the salvation of others. And Paul says what he does is he puts himself out for others. That's how he lives. So that's the big picture principle that God's doing. Well, how do we fit into it? In any and every way. <laughs> it's entirely flexible. Do you see the flexibility in those bits? The principle's not flexible. God be doing it for God's glory and the salvation of others. But how we do it, whether we do it full-time or part-time, we all do it full-time, by the way, but whether we do it paid or unpaid, whether we do it through prayer or giving or time or gifts or whatever, it's eminently flexible, whether we're eating or drinking or whatever we do. We don't want to cause others to stumble as we do it. We want to put ourselves out for others as we do it. But it's eminently flexible. Uh, You can do it as you can be part of God's mission, as you work in a milk factory or as you serve overseas as a full-time mission partner for Sydney's. We can be involved uh, as in God's mission as a full-time mum or as a person speaking the streets. We can do it as we preach the word from a pulpit or as we have a conversation with a friend or family member. But we're working for God's glory and the salvation of people.
We're all to use our time and gifts, our money, that will look differently for all of us. And don't do the sideways glance that Naomi was talking about. Because you're in a different set of circumstances with a different person, different situation. But we're all to use them for God's glory and the salvation of others. In other words, of course, you don't have to cross water to be a missionary. We sometimes think that, don't we? I don't think anyone's ever said that or taught it. We kind of think, well, missionaries are those people who cross over large bodies of water and do mission stuff in another country and context. We're all called to be part of God's mission, wherever we are. Am I right, Rosie? You know, you should start with a little fine line. What's that? I was going to write down that line. Oh, good. That's good. I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged. Uh, which means we should think about adopting some of the um, uh, some of the ways missionaries do things. If you go to a, if you go and are a full-time missionary, think of the uh, the Dunbars in Cambodia. Now, I presume that what happens when they get there is they learn the culture. They learn the language, they learn the culture because they want to be able to communicate faithfully the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ in an effective way. Now, they know in the end it's God who changes hearts and lives, so they'll be doing it prayerfully, but they will look at the culture and work out how do I explain who Jesus is and what he's done for these people in this culture. We don't tend to do that here because we think we know the culture. So we just put on services we just put on services and expect people to come. But we don't think about understanding the culture so that we can talk to them about the issues and hopefully have conversations that lead to Jesus. Or There's lots that we can do. And one of the things I, that we need to do as Christians, and I say this to evangelical Christians, so Stevens would say we're an evangelical church and I wear that badge proudly, but um, the knock on evangelicals, I wrote about this in the last thing for the diocese, and I also mentioned this at the uh, Synod last week here. Uh, the knock on evangelicals is that we're, we're great with doctrine and teaching, and, but we don't love people very much. We must love people. We must look after the last, the lost, and the least. We've got to love them practically. The Lord Jesus did. We should. I said at the Synod uh, last week that I love that part of Acts 3 where Peter and John are going into the temple and they see the crippled beggar um, by the gate. Do you remember that passage? And there's two wonderful bits there. We're told that what happens happened because, and Luke writes this specifically, Peter looked that crippled beggar straight in the eye. That's what it says. Uh, I point that out because... my experience in Christchurch is I've come across many beggars, but I've lived in other parts of the world where you see a lot of beggars. And I can tell you what I did to my shame when I walked past beggars. The one thing I didn't do was make eye contact. Because if you make eye contact, you've got to do something. Peter made eye contact. And then he grabbed him by the hand, if you remember, and pulled him up. And uh, I remember preaching on that passage once and reading a commentary which said that um, although the power of that miracle was Christ's, the hand that pulled him up was Peter's. We've got to look people in the eye and love them. Grab them by the hand and show them the love of God. But we can't think that that's enough. Because evangelism means people coming to know Jesus. It's not just about loving them in action. They need to know who Jesus is and what he did for them. 
because it's a very different thing helping someone find food or be able to walk and still spending eternity without God. So although I desperately want us to be loving people practically and showing the love of God practically in those ways, they also need to hear what Jesus said. You've heard me say before, the, um, uh, one of the sayings I don't like when it comes to evangelism, uh, what is it? Live the preach the Thank you. Now, preach the say it again. Preach the gospel at all times if necessary. Use words. Yeah, preach the gospel at all times if necessary. Use words. We always need words. Someone can't see a loving action and suddenly go, oh, I realise Jesus got on the cross for me. And the gospel message has content. That content needs to be explained. So we need to, as we take part in God's mission in this world, we need to be loving people, but we, and I hope I've been clear on that, the need for us to do it, but we also need to know the priority of evangelism, the urgency of letting people hear who Jesus is and what he's done. But how do we do it, people? Flexibility. I'd love for us to think this morning about ourselves as individuals and ourselves as a church at St Stephen's about how we can be more effective in being part of God's mission in this world, bringing glory to him as people are saved. For some of us in this room, it might mean being ordained, being set apart, getting trained, doing it full time. We continue, and I rejoice in sending some of our best people overseas to serve the Lord. What a wonderful thing to do. There's a selfishness to it. I mean, they go away and do this glory job. No, but we love what they're doing. But we do it here too. For some of us, we've got more resources and we can share those resources to help people train or put them in the field. For some of us, we've got more time, more opportunities to serve in different ways. For some of us, we've got the gift of the gap. For some of us, we've got the, the, that kind of loving attitude which just radiates out. How do we, individually and as a church, fit into God's plan in this world? There's real wisdom as Christians being intentional about how we take part in God's mission in the world. And he doesn't prescribe it for you. He prescribes the principles. But where do you do Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God, for the salvation of people, not causing others to stumble, and not doing it for your own personal joy and satisfaction, but for the good of others. Real wisdom for us to think about. Do you see the privilege we have as Christians? This world is so broken and messy at the moment. It always has been. But um, every generation there's a new kind of mess or brokenness which comes, which just fills us with sadness when we see it. But it's there because of the fullness of the world and people not knowing who they are or what life's about. We do. We have that privilege. We know exactly who we are. Children of God. We know exactly what God's doing in the world. It's our job to fit in to work. To proclaim Christ faithfully to the nations. Margaret reminded us that that was the Gafcon um, statement at the last meeting. I, like Margaret, I think it's a great statement. Even at the clergy conference last week, I told the clergy saying, can we make that the CCA tagline? Proclaiming Christ faithfully to the nations. Um, and there's a lot of buy-in. We may, we may end up doing that. But you don't just do that as you stand in the pulpit. We do that as we live godly lives, seeking God's glory and the good of other people, seeking their salvation in particular. 
We have the privilege of having Jesus. We also have the responsibility to share in the world with desperate needs. Right, I'm going to finish there, I think. And then, did you say questions? Oh, shall I pray? Thank you. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for um, this chance to just pause out of uh, our normal lives to think for a few moments about what you're doing. Not, not, our, not what we do, not our normal routines or responsibilities, but what you're doing. And Father, although I don't know exactly why you choose to use us, because we're fallen and frail and weak in so many ways, you do. And so we would uh, just pray that you would use us. We would be open for it, we would be intentional about it, we would be thankful as we do it and joyful. We would be wholehearted because we love you and we love uh, the world that you've created. And we pray that uh, in some small way through our ministry as individuals and as a church at St Stephen's, you might move people from darkness to light. You might change hearts and lives. That they may too may become part of your family and uh, continue your purpose in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, we, I don't. This, this, this is on, so we'll see. Oh, we um, we're going to have some uh, question time now, and I thought I would reward good questions with um, with chocolate. I've got a question. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll start the ball rolling. I actually had a question about your personal thoughts on the saying, "Preach the gospel uh, with words." Uh, if necessary, uh, but you've already said that. So I'll move on to the next one. Do well, you just before you do that, there's another yep. one. What's the other one that I don't like? Yeah, that's the one. Christianity is taught, not taught. And the, the thinking there is that um, it's more important what you do than what you say as a Christian. And there's some truth to that, isn't there? Nothing worse than hypocrisy. Nothing worse than people who speak true words and there's no integrity and they don't live it up in their lives. But I don't not like it for what it affirms. I, I don't like it for what it denies. It says caught, not taught. Christianity has to be taught. There is a content to the Christian message and that has to be verbalised. That's clear all the way through the teeth. So if the saying was caught and taught, brilliant, I'm all okay with it, but caught, not taught, then it, you suddenly get into the idea that um, uh, I can just do my bit if I'm... Um, if I'm setting a good example, or it's more than that. It is that, and it, we need to keep remembering that and living that, but it's more. Thank you very much. I, I remember at a uh, League of Youth meeting, um, we just sung over a thousand times the same, and the missionary got up and said, what do you do with the one you've got? Right, yeah. That's a confronting question, the end of a rousing song, isn't it? Yeah. Very true. What do we do with that tongue? Because at some stage... We, we want to be loving and looking after people, but we want a chance to tell them about Jesus too. And we must tell them about Jesus. We'll do that in our actions, but it needs to be in words. So, thank you. That, that's a very good question. There you go. <laughs> uh, so, dark orange. M- I can recommend this, people. My, my question for you is, do you think we as a church err more on the side of um, service and loving other people, or do we err... Uh, more on the side of we just want to preach the word and we don't focus enough on, on loving our neighbour? Well, I don't like breaking them up. So the, I'm breaking them up today to make a point because there are some who think it's either or and I'm trying to say it needs to be both. 
Uh, if you're looking at whether we do one better than the other, or I never quite know. I'm always thankful for the Shirley Community Trust being part of the church family. And I, I know that can seem odd because sometimes I think I'm viewed as someone who hasn't taken as much interest in the Church Community Trust, which uh, may be true in some ways uh, because I've had other responsibilities, but I delight in that work. We need to be doing it. Uh, I feel like mine as a church has a particular kind of focus, but what we're trying to do is form Christians who will live godly lives um, and know how to give an answer for the questions they're asked. Uh, does anyone have any questions they want to ask? Yes. I work with a couple of women who are very obsessed with trying to get the next thing. When they still want to do the business, they need to know the address, set up everything, the next thing, put themselves into their kids. And I can see kind of the pain of that and the lack of the feeling of never being satisfied and their husband's saying to them, oh, you can get so much kind of that causing the tension. But I don't really know how to, it really challenged me what you said, because I thought, I, I guess I try to quietly sort of live differently or behave differently, but, I, and I more find myself getting drawn into that and wanting to, you know, com, you know improve in ways that they want to suggest or otherwise. And I feel like I don't really know what to say and answer to that. I just think it's a really good question and observation to make. Uh, no, I recommend saying you're a sinner, the world's broken, sort yourself out. Uh, I think you did right, and please don't understand, I'm not saying here, with the importance I've just put on being able to say things, I'm not saying go out and be rude, be insensitive. <laughs> nothing worse than, oh, some people want that. Um, uh, nothing worse than insensitive, rude Christians who um, ignore the reality of the situation that's going here and start talking about something else or do it in a really unhelpful way. There's no use speaking. As Christians, we don't just want to say true things. We want people to be changed. And that will mean that will affect the way we speak truth. And sometimes there's a place for the hard word and, and, and to not get the hard words wrong. Sometimes the hard word is the wrong thing to do and you need the arm around the shoulders and things like that. So I think what you're... Uh, asking about is just a really significant issue. Uh, I'd say two things, I think. One, yeah, we, the hardness for people, I think it's easier to be, in some ways, live a Christian life in ordained ministry because you're away from the world in lots of ways, you're protected. Everyone else is more in the world and there's a difficulty there. So I think you spoke about the, the um, I find myself getting sucked in. We all do. So try and keep living that Christian life, which I think is the three ways that God gives us to do that is prayer, Bible, and fellowship. Those three things, by His Spirit, help us keep living the, the Christian life. And then I think try to work out, knowing that person in that situation, the best way to make an impact. It could be through action, it could be through words, it could be through a question, it could be through you showing them somehow you understand their situation better than maybe they even do. Because sometimes they won't realise the dissatisfaction they're feeling in life. Um, uh, I, I want to 
sometimes wondered about us as a church running some workshops on trying to understand our culture so that we can better speak into it. Um, and I wonder whether something like that might be helpful. Because when we understand the dissatisfaction and the pain and the unhappiness of people, I feel like we'll be better positioned to be able to speak truth in a, a way that could be heard. It doesn't demand that it will be, but I'd like to keep thinking about that. It's a really good question. Thank you for that. Uh, Liz dropped it. If you drop it, do I get it? Oh, 100%. Are there any other questions? At the back? No. no. A tough one, please. No. I don't know how 
general calling versus specific calling. So I know as, um, as God has created us to all have free will, and that's a beautiful thing, because we get to choose whether we recognise Him and we choose to be His disciples, or whether we turn our backs on Him. And then, so when we choose to recognise Him, uh, that, so the free will is part of the beauty of all that, because we can express love and fellowship and prayer and adoration to the Lord. Okay, and I agree with what you're saying that um, within the fact that He's given us free will, there's a whole lot of creativity of what we can, there's a whole lot of scope of what we can do in the service of the Lord. Um, but then sometimes I think some people, such as yourself, even, or, or missionaries, when you, move, when you feel, when you start to get in your gut, there might be a more specific calling, and there's more of a risk with that calling, and you want to think, I really want to know, this gut feeling I have, is this, is this just me, or is this really a calling from the Lord? So do you have any comments about how, because I don't know if that's moving specifically, how do you discern what, what are the different elements that you could explore to discern whether this really is calling? Yeah, it's a great question, Charles. Um, I think, I do believe in a sense of calling. I think it's overplayed sometimes, but I do think that God calls us to different roles and responsibilities and all that kind of thing, and not just ordained ministry, but calls us to different relationships and aspects of life and uh, all of that. Just when there's risk. That's, yeah, that's right. Is this, am I being crazy? Or is exactly right. And there's always a danger with whether we're reading it right, isn't it? Because sometimes what I feel is a conviction or a gut feel is right on the money, and I love it when that's the case, and sometimes it's terrible and wrong. So is this God calling me by his spirit, or is this me thinking the wrong way? And So I just think there's great wisdom in looking for that uh, calling being recognised by other people in the name. I said before with mine, it was, another, it was another minister who spoke to me first, and then we had a meeting of people who knew not just me, but Jamie and I really well, and I very much value their advice and thoughts over that. In the Anglican system that we're part of, there's a discernment process for ordination. So it comes from, there's a person who thinks, I think God's calling me in this way, but it needs to be recognised by the minister. So the first part of the process is a minister getting in touch with me to say, I'd like this person to be considered for ordination. And then that person meets with a bishop and a discernment advisor and goes through a process to go, do we all think that this is the calling of God on this person's life? And there, I think, now, those discernment processes can still get wrong. We can all look at uh, examples, of, you might be looking at an example right now, of uh, somewhere where it went wrong. And, uh, but, it, but it takes the burden just out of the individual trying to wrestle with, is this right myself? And it's using the collective wisdom and experience of those who know them and, uh, and those who know what the role is and that kind of thing. So I would say keep searching for that because there, there may well be some people here today who are exactly thinking that. And it may well be the spirit prompting and leading and guiding. But look for that to be confirmed in, 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 in the wisdom and advice of others. And I guess CMS uses a similar process with missionaries. You don't have any other comments to add to that? I've done the ordination process um, recently as well as walked with missionaries. It's very similar. And it feels like it's very honest, discerning with people, and, mm-hmm. you know, and walking alongside. So it feels really similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
Uh, I've got one. Um, if someone has an idea for local mission, how should they go about uh, bringing their idea to, to life at St. Stephen's? Uh, like, is there a process or something? Well, there is. I mean, organisations work with a structure, and so um, part of the structure is not everyone going off doing their own thing, so it causes chaos, and you can be standing on each other's toes and causing each other difficulty and those kind of things. So within a church family, there's a structure, and uh, normally what you would do is go through vestry, and vestry would um, receive a kind of thing. Uh, I mean, we just did one with the op shop, didn't we? And um, I, could, I can tell you that the vestry at St Stephen's love it when people come up with ideas and are very supportive. Now, they'll try and make sure that it's being done well and um, uh, that, that processes and procedures and things have been thought about and put in place, but there's, there would be a, um, a prayerful joy, I think, at uh, any suggestions in that kind of way. We, we want to be... We, every church should never be sitting on its laurels because um, there's always more to be done. There's a... There's a truth in ministry that we kind of let buildings set our, set our horizon. So we think if the building's empty, we've got more work to do. If the building's full, we think we're good. Uh, I think that's a danger for St. Stephen's. On a Sunday, we'll have you know, 200 in the hall. You can look around and rejoice at the amount of people there and you think, well, great, we're, we're doing it. We've got just this area of Shirley full of thousands of people who don't know Jesus Christ. So we all churches uh, need to be looking at what they do and how they do it and looking for better ways to do. And what works at one particular time won't work at another time or in another place. Um, and so keeping having fresh ideas and trying new things is a really important thing to do. We tend to, I talked before about Paul, I think Paul's really good at giving principles which we should be inflexible and giving flexibility over how we do it. But often we as Christians and churches get it around the wrong way. We should be inflexible on the gospel. The gospel message of Jesus Christ doesn't change. Yet I worry some churches and even denominations in this country change the gospel message. The way you minister the gospel can absolutely change. And yet there are some churches that won't accept certain types of music or chairs being faced in a wrong way or um, all these kind of odd things which you should be totally flexible on. So we become flexible where we should be inflexible, and inflexible where we should be eminently flexible. Churches have got a lot of flexibility. Anglican churches have slightly less than some, because there's more prescribed service stuff, but there's good reasons why, and I'll argue about that with you later if you want. Um, but flexibility over what we do. And what works in uh, Shirley in 2021 will be different than what works in Fendleton in 2019. Well We've got time for two more questions. So, you know, Carol. Okay. Um, getting, getting Well, I feel like it's more um, at a personal level and a structural level. 
So I feel like we're, in my mind, we're equipping our people week by week, not just Sunday by Sunday, but during the small groups, during the one-to-ones, during all the ministries that go on, to allow people to do that in their areas, their families, their workplaces, their homes, their residential places, all of that. Now, I think it happens in other ways as well. There is um, uh, some more one-off things that we do. There's the Shirley Community Trust stuff, but I think it's, I think we probably err on one side uh, of equipping people to do it individually rather than organised things. So it's probably a weakness. I feel like I don't personally and should. Anyone else? Um, How do you train your people and your guys actually in, uh, in, in everyone to have more confidence in their confidence in the proclamation as that is so important? Uh, good question. Yeah. <laughs> what was that? It's a question from Chichai. Oh, is it? How dare you. That's a really good question. Um, say it again. How do we get more confidence? How, to how do you train people so, so they have more confidence and their confidence that they can do the proclamation, that they can verbalize the, the gospel, their personal story, their testimony, uh, or, or you know, a gospel presentation in a way that is relevant in 2021 and beyond in their... Thank you. Well, I think we do one part of it okay and the other part not very well. So I think part of good gospel uh, confidence is knowing the culture well so that you can speak into it sensitively and well. And I think I was just saying, I've thought for a while we should run some workshops looking at the culture so that we can do it. So I don't think we do that part particularly well. And when I say we, I'm talking about me. Uh, in terms of giving confidence on, so I think good uh, Bible teaching gives confidence in the word. And so, because what you're hoping to do is not just preach a particular passage, but you're hoping to give people the tools to go, I could see this myself, and I'll spend more time in the word, and then I'm better prepared and I'm more confident. Because I think the more people are confident in the word, they're confident that it's not just up to themselves and their own wisdom and their own capabilities, but they know that God, uh, through his, they'll be teaching the truth, and the more they know that, the more they know God by his spirit will be working through them. Uh, we also do a couple of other things. We, um, we uh, uh, put a priority on um, an evangelistic course that we run. So we run Christianity Explored. I don't think it matters what course you run, but that you're running a course not just for non-Christians to learn uh, about Christianity, but for Christians to learn how... Be- because all those evangelistic courses are aimed at presenting the gospel in a relevant way, which is free from jargon and other things, the more Christians do it, the better equipped they are to do it. Um, uh, We also intentionally train some of our younger ones through the intern program. So we run an internship at at St Stephen's. Uh, So this year we've got four who are full-time interns and um, uh, we do training with them uh, coming through for the next generation. And there's always um, those Bible study things like two ways to live. You'll be getting yours. Two ways to live. And um, in Pathfinders we do who will be king. And so there are ways you can train away, even kids to preach the gospel to the yeah, kids. Yeah, thank you. So they're always helpful. Uh, Jaden, you're up. Not a question. Thank you. Uh, Sorry, you just, 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 I'm happy to 
getting to know you. Um, some folk know this, this lady very well and others not so much. So, um, so it is a privilege to have Rosie with us. Um, she is now the NZCMS National Director. So that does mean she's filling Steve's shoes, basically. That's the role that Steve used to do, Steve Minor. Um, I made this comment in this and I remember the conversation, I think when you were, there was a morning tea or something when you were being appointed, I think I was there, and, and I remember Steve telling the story, um, because apparently when he's, when he's wanting to develop people, it's, you get invited out for a coffee, don't you? That's, that's his tradition, so that's how this whole thing came about. Okay, so um, just a bit of backstory first of all. So I understand you have been in Wellington in recent years, but more recently you've decided to come and live in Christchurch. So, so how long have you been here, and what is your favourite thing about living here? I moved um, to Christchurch at the end of March, so it's been a couple of months, um, and I'm actually really, I've always done tramping because it's been my studies. I did my first tramp in the Arthur's Pass last weekend, and it was a bit mind-blowing. And the mountains, snow, uh, gorgeous, isn't it? Yeah, the outdoors of the South Island is exciting. Yeah, we live in a beautiful country. Okay, so. Um, now we're going to turn the block, the clock back. Um, so I understand that you uh, spent time as a missionary um, in Cairo, Egypt, for five years. So when you think back to that time, um, uh, why? How, how did you sense your call, a calling to go to Egypt, and what did you do while you were there? <coughs> Like <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that sense for me of, I think when I look back now at my teenage years actually, there's an aspect of me, and I think it's that kind of who God created me to be, I loved working across cultures, so even as a teenager I was involved with the Somalian after school program with international students at university, I did a short term trip to Thailand, and there was just something in me that loved that idea of working in another culture, that was a real culture sense of, of calling on that. Um, and I think, and then it was also a couple of copies of Steve, who was very good on the wood, on the street Thing, but it just seemed how God can use 
those skills. And I think the other reason for Egypt was Egypt gave me a good challenge actually traditionally we've often sent people often to East Africa. There's actually a lot of Christians in East Africa, there's still a role for missionaries, but the first challenge for me was I don't know if you've heard the language of 1040 window, but there's a whole area of the world that's kind of belt across the world where there really isn't that many Christians. So his challenge was me, to me was actually pray about the Middle East, is that somewhere God could be leading me to. So I, yeah, it was a kind of individual calling, but there was actually a sense of listening to authority for me. And, and mm. I think when I went to Egypt, I, wasn't, I didn't really know, I just felt like taking a step. But actually after about three months, I can see, well, God, you just brought me to this this role that's such a good fit um, in, in the right place to be. So does that mean when you first went over here, there was a little bit of a trial period <laughs> before you had the absolute tick, yes, Lord, yes, yeah. I feel right, this is it. Yeah, sometimes we can kind of, I totally remember this place where we, we're just waiting for the right answer to come. And I think sometimes that does happen, it happens to me, but other times I think you just have to start walking. And see where God leaves you. So I think I just thought, well, I never went to Egypt, never been to the least. I just kind of packed my bags and went, but I also was on leave without paying for my job, going back and into the same community house. I thought, okay, God, if this doesn't work, I can come back, you know. But that, but I think it was actually a calling just to be all in. That sounds good. Okay, and so then the next important phase is. Um, um, getting called to, to be leader, your current role, leader of New Zealand CMS. Uh, what's the, the official title? Uh, National Director? There you are. Uh, yeah, so tell us a bit more about that and maybe a bit of, I guess everybody, maybe a little bit of backstory about what, what CMS is. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so firstly, I left Egypt after five years. I got pretty burnt out, so I was there for a couple of revolutions. I was working for a bishop. It was amazing man of God that didn't have great boundaries around work and life and I kind of joined, joined that culture. I say, so I really needed to leave but I um, ended up studying in the US, studying in an Anglican seminary there for three years which really helped me process all of the last two years kind of theologically and I, to be honest I felt like when I left Egypt I could, I really understand, I had a lot of close Muslim friends, I had people asking me all the time who is the Holy Spirit? Why did Jesus die? I had these questions and I actually honestly didn't have very good answers. So I went to Bible college to be able to, to have answers deeply that I could then talk to my Muslim friends about. Um, ended up coming back to New Zealand. My dad wasn't very well, so I think for me there's a sense of a long-term calling still to the Middle East, but I spent time for a season in New Zealand. Mm. Um, and I think when the role came up, I, I just have a real deep love for CMS and I hear stories from the League of Youth and I think about the CMS missionaries that first brought the gospel to New Zealand, it's incredible legacy and I thought I just have this real love and loyalty to this organisation that walked with me and supported me for some hard times and I thought, yeah, there was a sense of faithfulness to me, a theory and then I said some I didn't think I knew there was going to be a global pandemic about six months after I started the job, so yeah. I think at that time I thought, okay, what was that? Yeah, what was I thinking? But I think, um, I think God uses us, say, and I think actually for me, some of the, the deepest times of brokenness and hardness of my life has been some of the bits that as I've sat with missionaries and sometimes in hard places it's like you can kind of understand. So I think that kind of idea that God uses who we are and what we're 
Mm, that's amazing. Yeah, that must have been a surprise for you, getting into the role and then suddenly it's COVID. Because I remember when Steve did it, he travelled quite a lot to, to support the missionaries. So I guess for you, you were doing a lot of Zooming to <laughs> support, if that was possible, if they had the internet. But, yeah. Yeah, we're supposed to. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's been, I, I guess I don't speak for our mission partners. We have about 32 mission partners at the moment, and that will just touch people in integrity. And I think the hardest thing last year was, particularly for some of the families, it ends up being very hard to continue serving some things. I mean, some people come back, most of our people stay and keep ministering, but I think yeah. those who have kept ministering, there's a toll, and those who have had to, you know, have kind of come back. So that's our icebreaker, getting to know Rosie. So right now we're going to sing a song, we'll sing In Christ Alone, um, and then it'll be over to you.
rosary training for us. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 to 21. And it's the NIV version. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God was reconciling the world to himself and Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God.
the pearl in the field, you know, selling everything to buy that field. There's that, there's that kind of fervor of taking the gospel out. And that's, that's the fervor we, we still share. Um, but also we, we find ourselves in a different place where actually three quarters of, of the global Christians are actually outside the West. Um, so I had a priest who was a missionary actually in my home church, Wellington, often used to say our average Anglican is probably a young Nigerian woman. The church looks pretty different than sometimes what we, what we perceive it. So what does that mean to become a missionary now? What does it mean in, in this different context? And I just really, I think when I first started this role, I was really praying about kind of a passage or, or a scripture that I'd want to speak from. And I, I think this um, passage from 2 Corinthians 5 really spoke to me in lots of ways. And I, I wanted to talk today about um, kind of three myths about missionaries. And the first one was the myth of the missionary hero. And sometimes I think, particularly actually, sometimes if you read old missionary biographies, which are really awesome reads, you can also get the idea that um, it's kind of something you go off and heroically do in your own strength. It's almost um, missions as activism, we just kind of get out there and do it. And I think the beautiful thing about this passage is Paul writes, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And then the emphasis, all this is from God. And the mission is in God's heart, that first God reconciled us to himself, and then he entrusted to us, he gave us this message of reconciliation. We love because he first loved us. We reach out towards the church with arms of love to a broken world, because that's the heart of God, and that's what Christ did to us. And I think, honestly, um, for myself, I, 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 I knew this, I knew this theologically, but when I got to Egypt, I saw so much need around me. My role was partly helping fundraise for a lot of the ministries and projects the huge diocese was doing. And even when I woke up in the morning, there were refugees lined up outside, kind of outside the streets um, from Syria and Sudan. And so it was a sense of just kind of always need. And I think I did get into this false understanding that I suppose to say now saving the world one funding proposal at a time, you know, like that sounds ridiculous, but I think I did get to a place of feeling like it was, it was up to me and um, I think after spending three years studying, it felt like a sabbatical in a way, just spending time in the text and in the word, like what I good is that to get to do that? I think one of the deep meanings for me is that kind of how our work in the world and our mission comes from the overflow of our hearts, comes from that trust and that, that living as a disciple of Jesus. And I think um, there was one kind of a friend of mine who was an older missionary, and was a, she was a doctor, she was the wife of a bishop, she was doing a lot with the Mother's Union in this Western Ethiopia, and she just had so many, there was so much need that she could have actually helped as a doctor. And I remember asking her, how do, you, how do you know in that place? How do you know what to do? And she had the sense of, I just asked Jesus, who am I called to serve today? And I trust Jesus that he will care for the other people. But it's not just up to me, but God, it's the Lord's in God's hand, trusting the Lord's my house to save. And I found that a really a useful thing. It's kind of puts the emphasis away from asking for what, what God's already doing and how we get to take part in that. And also in this passage, um, maybe the, the slide before, um, Paul writes, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that, that language of new creation, what does that mean? And I think that also when we, when we're at work in the world, when we're doing the work of mission, 
We do this as new creations. So it's kind of about where we're at at God's story. I'm sure you have lots of teaching on this. I don't need to go into it much. But the idea that the kingdom of God has already come, the person of Jesus, the kingdom has come. But it's also not fully here. When Christ returns, all will be restored, all made new. All tears wiped away, no more suffering and death. And so when we wait for Christ to return, we, we live in this time of tension. We live in a place of still suffering, sin, death and brokenness. But we're called to live as kingdom people, the first fruits of the Spirit. Um, so I, I think that's really exciting that we get we get the we have the work of the Spirit. We get to participate in the life of God and what God's already done. But we also see what's not right. And we get to be part of that. Um, and I think often for me, it's as well, I've come to really appreciate the Anglican way of worship, particularly the kind of Eucharist of we uh, it's all Christians. But I think that the Anglican Church is often more of a focus and that we're fed with Christ's body and blood, that we're fed and then we go out to, to love and serve the Lord. So I think that's the first kind of missionary myth I wanted to talk about is this idea that a missionary's kind of activist who goes out and does, does great stuff, writes letters about it. But actually that's it's first of all the work of God, that's out of God's strength and out of God's love that he pours into our hearts. And I think maybe it doesn't change what you do, but I think it changes how you do it, the kind of heart that you come to, to come to your work with. I think the second one, I think is what Jay touched on in his talk, is the myth that mission is only a foreign mission field. And in this, this full passage, it talks about that we are ambassadors for Christ, that God is making his appeal for us. And I started to think about that metaphor of embassy. And I sort of think here in New Zealand we have a Swedish embassy, which represents the king of Sweden in this foreign country of New Zealand. So here we are in New Zealand and we're actually foreigners. We are representing Christ the King in this foreign land. The world is not our home. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So here we are in Christchurch as citizens of God's kingdom. <coughs> Katie's often in Spain. We've got Miriam in Togo, Luke and Naomi on one route to Japan, the other Rebecca in Cambodia. But what we all have in common is that we all um, call to be ambassadors in a foreign country, and actually New Zealand, in a way where our ultimate heart citizenship is, is a foreign country in that sense, and that we're called to to make Christ known in that. And when I, um, many of you would have met Luke and Naomi when they came through the centers and started supporting them, I had a Zoom call with actually the group that they're going to be serving with, so it's a um, university student group. Um, that does evangelism on campuses. And I actually asked them, why do you need missionaries? Why do you need New Zealanders and Australians to come over and, and serve? And they actually said, what really works well in their ministry is having a group, both Japanese and foreigners together, making an appeal to people. And they said, actually, people often listen in a different way. The students often listen in a different way to foreigners coming. And so there's a sense of real partnership together in doing that work. Um, and something I really appreciate about Luke and Naomi as well is that when we did the commissioning at Cornerstone Church, Luke did a really great um, kind of call to the congregation to say, actually, I'm a bit sad about leaving because there's so much work to be done in Christchurch as working with international students. He kind of commissioned the congregation, you guys keep going with the work here and we'll be off in Japan. You know, that he says we're all in this together, all ambassadors in different places. And I think that sense of being ambassadors is not just it's not just a passive, it's not just representing. But Paul writes, God is making an appeal for us. And the way that people know who Christ is, is by looking at his people. Um, 
I find it I'm quite hard. I think over the last three weeks, actually, I feel like I've had a real sense of my own brokenness, to be honest. And some, I think God does that sometimes, right? You, you see the bits of yourself that aren't quite right, and you think, well, okay, the way people know who Christ is through us, that feels a bit overwhelming. And I, I had this one circle of friends in Egypt who I kind of got to know her through doing language learning. And the second time we met, she started talking to the Muslim woman, talking about how she'd read the whole of scripture, she'd been to talk to a priest about it, so she was really searching. And she, over the months we got to know each other, she kept saying to me, there's something different about you. Is that because of your country, or is that because of your Christian? Well, she said, you and your flatmates, uh, Rosie, love each other like sisters. Is that your culture, or is that, what is that? And so I was always saying to her, I don't, it's really weird when someone says that to you so openly. It's quite an odd thing, but we just keep saying that the Holy Spirit, this is the Spirit's work. You two can join this. And, and it was, it was, and she did. It was a, a beautiful, a beautiful thing for her to see. And actually, even her mum, her Muslim mum, no Muslim mum ever says this ever, basically says, every time you spend time with your university friends, you come back kind of a bit angry and stressed and sad. Whenever you spend time with Rosie and like that, like Jubilee, you come back full of joy and happiness. So if you want to go to church, that's fine with me. Like no Muslim mother ever says that. So it was just this amazing thing, not just here, but actually her mum started to see the impact of her. Um, and actually I went back, um, I took a group of students from the US to Egypt and I met with her and she started telling me about scripture. Like she started telling me how she's grown and how. It was in, and I saw a big change in her. It was that exciting thing of, that we get to be ambassadors wherever we are, and actually people do notice. I think the third myth I wanted to talk about was about the scope of mission. And I think sometimes the idea of mission is one of those words that we can use it to mean lots of different things. Um, and I think within scripture, Paul's writing, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And I just think there's that, that entrusted, that we, we, we're trusted with this message, and that kind of sense that we live in this brokenness and broken relations with God and self and others and with creation. And first of all, we're calling people to be reconciled to God. And then out of this love, poured into our hearts, we're called to live out this love. And I think also referencing what Jay was saying, I think lots of ink has been spilled on that whole social justice or evangelism. And to be honest, I feel like that's a particular Western problem with the church. I think um, when I was working in Egypt, it just didn't feel like there's lots of people with need and there's lots of people who didn't know Jesus, so let's just kind of get on with it. It didn't feel like a tension um, at all, to be honest. We had hospitals that were really good hospitals that provided great medical care. But also, the doctors would often get to share about Jesus within the kind of private privacy of their rooms, and there was trust to the patients who saw the love of the doctors. But it kind of was that kind of, yeah, I think we like to create either or, and it's kind of not necessary. But I think there is something about um, the order that it is God who reconciles, reconciles us. So we're called to be faithful, but it's God who does that work. And then after God has reconciled us and has saved us, then we are entrusted with that message. And so actually in the way that in CMS we, we did some work on strategy last year, the way we wrote it was we committed to the authority of scripture that proclaims the Lordship of Christ over all things. Therefore our mission is to call people to follow Jesus as Lord 
and to see God's coming, kingdom coming in all the flat. So one kind of definition of mission, which to be honest is one of those really big capsule, but actually not bad, is the whole church taking the whole gospel of the whole person to the whole world. And so this is the whole church, this isn't just the special people that we put up on the notice board, this is, this is all of us. This is the whole gospel, it's the good news of Christ's king over our lives, the news of God's kingdom. It's the whole person, it's our spiritual being, it's, it's all of us, and it's the whole world, it's not just this mission field over there. I think the problem with this definition for an organisation like CMS is where does this leave us? Do we just kind of think, okay, this is the work of the church, so maybe we should close up shop and, and finish? And so I would say absolutely, we're all called to mission. But there is also a, a specific calling, I think, um, that we hold as CMS within the kind of wider church in New Zealand of that particularly cross-cultural ministry and that particular global view <coughs> of the world. And we, we hold to that. And I think there's two reasons we think that continues to be important even in these days. Even when there's gospel needs in New Zealand, that doesn't mean there's not gospel needs overseas. And I think one of those is there's still parts of the world where no one knows Jesus. There's not, a, there's not a local church or a strong local church to be sharing the gospel with others. And I think where Luke and Naomi are going, Japan is less than 1% Christian, um, where they're heading, evangelical Christian. Um, a story I like to tell is, and I worked in the rest of Ethiopia, so right by South Sudan, right in the corner. And there was a really small people group, about 10,000 people called the Opal people. And they had a river that cut off them, that kind of cut their villages off from the rest of Ethiopia for most of the months of the year. But they had some missionaries actually come across the border from South Sudan and so actually the first missionaries that came with Seventh-day Adventists and they kind of talked about the message of the sins and they said then the Opo, whose entire foundation of their society is based on coffee, this is from the area where coffee originated, they found out that they could not drink coffee if they were Seventh-day Adventists and they said, no thanks, we're drinking. So then a little bit later, an Anglican came across from South Sudan preached the gospel, they listened, and the Oko said, can we drink coffee? And he said, yes, we're Anglicans. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's a good story, but also really there are a people group that literally as I was there, were finishing their first translation of the gospel of Mark, they were learning about salvation. And it was really exciting to see this people group, and they were asking, I remember the bishop telling a story, someone died of a, a beast there, I think, and, and something happened, and they they were really wanting to know what was going to happen and we talked about resurrection so that kind of that newness of faith of, of hearing the gospel for the first time so I think that's one reason and, and often I think if you get our CNS newsletters one of the challenges for us as an organisation we have people in kind of closed countries where if they, people knew they were missionaries they'd get kicked out if people knew the Christians, local Christians I'm working with they really do get locked up in jail and so we have to be really careful about some of our more secure mission partners but, so we don't always talk about them as much particularly if it's being videoed but I think that sense of it's a core part of who we send out people to places where there really is another Christian presence so that's one reason and I think the second one is this idea of we're part of this body of Christ that we're actually one body and so within scripture it says if one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. That sense that we're actually knitted together as Christian brothers and sisters. And so when we were doing our strategy last year, one of our board members who's worked in Papua New Guinea, she was saying, even if the whole world was Christian, we would still see missionaries and mission partners. And that sense that we're still called to be part of that global 
global connection, it's how we connect with each other. And so I think um, for me, when, I'm, when I was in Egypt coming back to New Zealand, I felt like a real burden to share with the church in New Zealand what was happening in the Middle East, what was God doing and my think with his people there. And so we use the language of mission partners to talk about that idea of partnership. So when we send people, they're always working under an organisation and partnering together. Um, and when we send people in those roles, there's often a focus on um, kind of multiplication, so training others, building up the church, building up skills. Um, so one of our mission partners is going to show you a video to so have a break from me, so they can test some of you might know them from Christchurch. Um, they've been in the north of Uganda for a few years. Um, Nick has been setting up medical clinics, and one thing I love about him is he's really, he really understands the power of prayer and healing, as well as good medical practice. So he's really encouraging mm-hmm. his, his nurses and staff to really have a, a prayer ministry in the church. Um, so that's going to show a little bit about what they've been up to. Hello, mission people. Hello. I'm Stephen. Pablo. And I'm Nick. Welcome to our home in Roman Uganda. We're going to take you on a little tour. This is our cooking store. Our mode of transportation. Healthcare black holes 
make sure that every you get has a good healthcare option. These health things are simple. <coughs> uh, we rent a building, we hire one nurse, and we train them uh, in our WHO mandated guidelines, and we set them up there with all of the, the tests and uh, medications they need to provide quality primary health care. They can do a lot uh, from treating malaria, pneumonia, and other common conditions, family planning, testing for HIV, hepatitis, urinary infections, pregnancy, and we've already come a long way. Uh, we are currently partnering with three different uh, Anglican dioceses across northern Uganda. We've launched 23 one-day health centers over the last three years, increased over 70,000 patients in remote healthcare black holes. These means some amazing churches, I know some of you are part of them, that have supported us a lot of this one-day health journey, so we've really helped you drive this mission forward. <laughs> So, like you, the biggest challenge for us uh, was Corona. Uh, but it was different, it wasn't the virus itself. The coronavirus lockdown made it hard for really sick people in distant facilities to reach hospital. We overcame this by providing free transport for people in remote health facilities and really supporting our nurses to get those sick people to the hospital. Uh, but it wasn't easy, and we had a couple of tragic cases where, because of the lockdown, a couple of our patients did. What I'm looking forward to in the next 12 months? Well, first thing is coming to New Zealand and seeing a lot of you. But secondly, One Day Health is going to partner with another two dioceses and launch another 21 day health into this year. So that's doubling in size. So we'd love you to pray for this next six months of expansion. There's a lot to happen in six months. We need forward relationships with dioceses in different parts of the country, speaking different languages. There's so much to come together, so we'd love you to pray for that. So my role here has focused on working with communities to identify something they want to change and then working with them um, to tackle that problem and find a solution. So this has ranged from forcing the government to put a speed hump outside a busy hospital to pushing um, the local district authorities to bring about a new alcohol war because there were these uh, small plastic sachets of spirits that were too affordable and everywhere um, that were just exacerbating the alcohol problem. What I'm currently working on, however, came about in 2018. One of the nurses from Next Health Center, a really remote area, called him up one day and said, there are these government soldiers moving around with guns, um, burning the homes of my patients. Uh, and this with us as you can imagine, to follow up and find out what was going on. And it turned out that the health center was in the middle of a very large area called the park that the government was trying to force a large population of over 20,000 people off to turn the area into an investment for trophy hunting. And from that moment, I went there made connections with local leaders in the community and I started to work with them in their long-term struggle uh, to defend the land. Probably the most significant thing um, that I was part of organizing with this community um, was a large protest in which 200 members of the community took trucks all the way to the urban center and occupied a UN um, compound for over a month. Uh, to try and force the UN to intervene um, on their behalf to get the government to stop um, destroying homes in a park. Uh, 
um, while it didn't fulfill all their goals, um, had a big impact, got lots of international and national media attention. Um, since then, the government has just stepped back and is not pursuing the widespread directions at the moment. Um, working with this incredible community that has defended their land for so long, uh, inspired me to start a PhD, which I'm doing at Cambridge. Doing research for this PhD has made me understand that the conflict is much, much more complicated than I previously thought. There is a, a whole other ethnic group um, called the Mighty who also have claims to this land. And what we've realized is that the only way um, for the people who are living on the land to defend it from the government is for these two groups, the Choli and the Mahdi, um, to unite and work together and to defend it collectively. Um, so that's been the biggest struggle for us in the last year. Um, a lot of the people that I'm working with um, have prejudices against this other ethnic group. Um, so it's going to take a lot to break down the boundaries and bring people together and unite for a common vision. So the group I'm working with has just formed a peace committee and I'm really looking forward to some of the Choli Mighty dialogues um, that we have coming up um, in the next few months. And we would love your prayers for God's hands um, to be on these meetings and spiritually working amongst the two groups as they find the workforce together.